Welcome to the Golden Age of Cardboard podcast, where we remember a time when stacks of cards were held together with rubber bands and Mickey Mantles were put in bike spokes. We hope you will enjoy and reminisce as you come along with us as we tell stories about the baseball cards from the Golden Age of Baseball. We will examine the state of the vintage baseball card market and talk to some of the greatest collectors in the hobby. You won't be hearing us talk about any chrome or shiny cards here. Now, to take you on this retrospective journey, here's your host, direct from the shallow end of the gene pool, my son, Mike Moynihan. Yo, and hello, everybody. Mike here. Welcome to another episode of the Golden Age of Cardboard podcast. I am excited to be here, excited to talk to you guys. I'm doing an episode today. I'm going to be doing it solo. And it's an episode that has been in the works for a long time. Over the year and a half or so that I've been doing this podcast through Instagram or YouTube comments and you name it, I I get a lot of questions. A lot of people asking me questions, whether it's about the hobby in general about my collecting style, why I do things the way I do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it is so much fun to answer those questions, not because I feel like I'm some expert in the hobby. I don't think it's very difficult to be an expert in the hobby because things are changing and things happen and so much to know. It's so hard. It's just the, the reality of it. But what I do have is a lot of experience. And again, 40 plus years of being a hobbyist, never taking a break, uh, like a lot of people, not that that means you can take breaks and still be just as knowledgeable. So that's not exactly a, a deal breaker thing, but I've been doing this a while, right? And with that comes experience. And with that comes, I, I've seen a lot of things and I've been through a lot of different phases in this hobby. And all have been great. And so I have nothing but good things to say about the hobby overall. But with that experience, people ask me questions and people want to get my opinion on things. And so what I thought I'd do today is the first um, kind of Q&A episode, questions and answers from you guys, the viewers, the listeners out there to me. Uh, I've been collecting those over the last week or so. And not to worry if you forgot to give me your question or whatever, send them to me because I'm going to start now as I get questions from people via Instagram, which is, by the way, at Baseball Collector Mike. Baseball Collector Mike is my Instagram and or here on a on the YouTube videos and any video that you write a question. I'm going to kind of put that in a in a Word document that I keep that I start just kind of collecting these questions that people might have. In in a future episode, may answer some of those or may have a question of the week or something. I know John Newman does that on his podcast, Sports Card Nation, question of the week sometimes. So I'll, I'll probably just do it more like uh, every once in a while, I'll do a Q&A episode like this. So we'll see how this goes. I, you know, I've got some questions lined up from people and I'm going to do my best to answer them. Whenever I answer any questions, whether it's privately on a direct message on Instagram or on a YouTube comment or whatever, remember, it's only my opinion. And 
I just happen to have an opinion and I'm happy to share it, but don't take it as gospel. I, I would tell anyone if you're asking questions about cards or sets, or do you think this is a good card? Or do you think that's a, which card should I go? At the end of the day, you got to make your own call on that, on whether it's a good price, whether it's a, the right condition, whether it's whatever, because it's your collection. And I, I hate when people, you know, kind of, kind of blame other people if, if they make a bad call, not, not that anybody's blamed me for a bad decision or anything, but I see it in the hobby some and it bothers me because you're responsible for your own actions. Don't be relying on other people, <clears throat> but that doesn't mean you can't get inspiration and that doesn't mean you can't, uh, you know, kind of be educated and inspired by other people because I have been countless times uh, over the years by so many people. And I, I love that actually about the hobby that I can go, wow, I never heard of that before. I've never seen that before. And it inspires me to go out and start looking for it. I, I have a bunch of cards in my collection that I only have because I saw it or heard about it from someone else and thought that is awesome. So let's, uh, let's start going through these questions. This will probably not be the longest episode you've ever heard. I don't have a ton of questions, but I have a few. And I'm going to do my best to answer them here. Uh, the first one is from Scott Minter. And he asks, have you got a minimum grade for vintage Hall of Famers that you would only buy now? <clears throat> well, good question, Scott. Have I got a minimum grade for vintage Hall of Famers? No, not really. Um I know there are people out there that have kind of a minimum grade. There are people that if they're collecting a set or a run of players, they only want eights on certain things or sixes or whatever, depending on the year and the decade of the card. I am not that way. I'm very uh, assigned grade neutral. Ideally, to answer this question somewhat, I would have what I call a collector grade for each of my vintage cards, meaning... I consider collector grade, if it's a 50s card, a five or better. If it's a 60s card, six or better. 70s cards, seven or better. You can kind of see the theme here. So that's kind of what uh, I have going on there. <laughs> Hang on, I'm going to bring a special guest on real quick, just because he popped on and he interrupted my stream. Ty, what's up? What's up? I How just wanted doing? to remind people to go check out our latest episode of On the Fly. With Mike and Ty. Thank you. It's all I'm, I'm so for. glad you did that. Um, <laughs> while I'm recording, you pop in and God, I'm talking right, about vintage you. Cardboard. you know nothing about this. Go away. All right. And, see ya. Uh, I see ya. Crazy tie. All right. Uh, Ty and I did just do an episode of On the Fly. So make sure you check that out. It is a podcast as well. So if you're a podcast listener and you like this stuff, uh, look for On the Fly with Mike and Ty. That's a podcast that we put out weekly uh, with Ty and myself. We think we do a good job with it, but you can be the judge of that yourself. All right. <clears throat> Back to the whole minimum grade for vintage thing that I was discussing. Scott's question. So the whole collector grade, trying to get a collector grade card for the different decades that I'm working on, the different sets that I'm working on of Hall of Famers. <clears throat> yeah, I would like that minimum grade. But what's happened in the vintage market over the last couple of years has really started to change the way I have to think about it. Not that I want to think about it, but that I have to. 
And that's because of prices appreciating. It has made me reevaluate and like, do I, would I like all these cards and these grades? Of course, but money is not, no, it's not, it's a double negative. That's bad English. Money is an object. Money matters. I only have so much of it as do you, as do most of us. And I, I want to stretch that hobby dollar as much as I can, which probably leads to the, to the way I think about cards, probably different than some others out there. I want a quantity of quality. I want a lot of cards. So I'd like them to be as high quality as I can get them, but I'm not going to pass up on a deal on a lower grade vintage card to wait and hold out and save up my money to get a PSA eight of XYZ vintage card. That's just not how I roll. And that's not bad. If that's how you roll, that's just not how I think about it. I just want the card. I want a decent looking example of it. Uh, I just bought, in fact, on Instagram from a guy that reached out, uh, uh, Gil Hodges, 1860 tops. It's a PSA three. That would definitely not be a grade in a card that I would be searching for on my own, but it was offered to me at a very reasonable price. It was, you know, incredibly like I, I, it was a deal I couldn't pass up. So I bought it and I'm not buying a lot of stuff. Like I've said, I'm on a, a card buying hiatus for a while. And that is predominantly true. Um, let's say I'm spending a fraction minor fraction of what I used to spend on a monthly basis or however often on cards. So this was just something I couldn't pass up. But so do I look and, and then you have to think about players too, right? I mean, Mantle, Maze, Aaron, those would all be great to have in, you know, very respectable collector grade or higher grades, all the, of course, but again, money matters. It does matter. And so I'd rather get a lot of cool cards in reasonable conditions. So I don't have a minimum grade, <clears throat> although I'm not out hunt, you know, I'm not going to buy a sixties cards in a, in a one. I just won't. You could literally give it to me and I probably wouldn't take it because I do want the card to have certain uh, attributes for it. You know, a one or a two is going to look just so bad. Although my P my uh, Willie Mays rookie is a PSA two, and it looks pretty good. So uh, there's exceptions to every rule. It's not a hard and fast thing, and I am very fluid with that. Let me tell you, over the years, I've been very fluid with that. And so I think at some point down the road, the higher graded vintage cards are going to be uh, unattainable, but that doesn't mean I'm just going to go out and start buying those again. We'll just kind of see. I play it by ear, kind of go with the flow with that. So hopefully that answered your question, Scott. Thank you for that. Next question is from, from Fernando. And Fernando has been following my channel for a very long time. So I appreciate you, Fernando. Uh, he says, his question is, sometimes I see raw vintage cards, which I love or would love to send to SGC or PSA. However, I am worried about the card being altered. How can I find dealers with a high reputation that sell vintage raw cards? Ooh, that's a toughie. Um, <clears throat> I think if you're buying raw and it looks really nice and it's vintage, you should be worried that it's altered. It doesn't mean it's altered. It just means that should at least cross your mind. Is this card trimmed? 
has it been altered in some way because old vintage cards are not meant to be perfect they are by by their very nature old and therefore have been through many hands so to speak and all these things so it it should be at least a <clears throat> uh kind of flashing red light in your brain that goes you know danger will robinson danger and you should at least consider that now there are some dealers i'll just on ebay especially i'll say because that's where most of us buy cards anyway uh greg morris cards is someone i would say and he doesn't sponsor this show or anything like that but i have found that his description of his cards and his in his listings and everything is pretty spot on accurate uh he or his team or whoever they list a ton of cards and they have a lot of cards which is also great if you're buying raw Greg Morris is is pretty much who I would tell you to look at uh, and see if they have it. And you also, if you're buying raw vintage on eBay or whatever, hard to do this at shows, but you want to look and see if they have kind of a money back guarantee. You know, if they have, or you might even, if it's a kind of higher, if it's a lower dollar card, you probably are not going to, like if I'm out 20 bucks or something, you're probably not going to, you know, get too pissed off although nobody likes getting duped ever you know but if it's a higher dollar card you definitely have some recourse if you were to send it off the problem with psa for example is it'll take forever and your statute of limitations to be able to send that card back to the original seller might expire if it's sgc uh, it'll probably come back within that window if you send it off the the minute you get it kind of thing um, and it comes back altered, then uh, you have some recourse there. But that's definitely something not all dealers are going to be, you know, like they're not going to agree with that. Maybe or, or, there's just so many potential problems with that, which is why I buy all my vintage already slabbed so that I don't have to worry about that. It doesn't mean that you're when you buy a slab card, PSA, SGC, whoever, that it's not altered. You don't know that. <clears throat> They do a pretty good job of detecting it, but they're not perfect. And so have I bought cards that are trimmed and altered? I bet you I have at some point over the years. <clears throat> I don't know that they are. I'm having a really hard time today, by the way. <clears throat> Probably need some water or something, but I don't have any in front of me. So, oh, well, I'll have to power through. But yeah, you, you, you know, if you buy raw, there's just always that danger. There's always that concern, and it's definitely there. Uh, I would tell you to, again, Greg Morris cards is pretty great on eBay. So go check them out. Thank you, Fernando, for the question. Let's move on to the next one. The next one is from Bald Rhino. Bald Rhino is a great YouTuber, and he asks, what service would you encourage your heirs to use if selling a large vintage collection as part of an estate? Wow. Um, first of all, it depends on if it's raw or vintage. Uh, that certainly matters. If you're going to sell, uh, you know, if, if you're telling like, okay, I have my collection, like, let's take what I do. I can just give you what I do and you can run with it or, or do it different. But I've told Julie that if something happens to me and most of my cards are the, the, let's call it the valuable cards are, you know, um, 
slabbed up. So I said, you need to call. I have some friends that are kind of available. If something were, you know, if I was to get hit by the proverbial turnip truck and end up six feet under that she can go to that will help her that, and I've already talked to those friends and said, Hey, if, if the unfortunate ever happens, will you help Julie figure this out? Cause it'll be a mess. This room is packed with stuff. It would be a daunting task for anyone. And then uh, a lot of the, uh, there's not really a service that does that, but a lot of the auction houses, they do this all the time, whether it's Robert Edward auctions or uh, God, you name it. I just went blank on all the golden or uh, memory lane or, Oh gosh, there's so many of them. There's a dozen, 15 at least. The auction houses, if you have a large enough collection, guess what? They're hopping on a plane and coming to your house to see it. And that's what I've told Julie to do. Heritage Auctions is local here. And I said, hey, you need to contact Heritage with the help of my friends and have them come over and assess and see what they would like. Uh, because trying to sell all this is very difficult would be very difficult. And probably for a lot of us, just because our heirs don't know what the heck they're doing. Right. And it, it's not their fault. They just don't know yet. They, they're not into cards or whatever. Uh, the other thing is to consign them. I've told Julie like, Hey, anything, the big auction houses don't want, send it to Probstein. And I know there's a lot of people out there that have negative uh, thoughts about selling cards through a consignment service like Probstein used to be yeah, PWCC was a big one and they had all their issues a number of years ago and they're not perfect. But at the end of the day, if I'm dead, I want my wife to get maximum value for the collection that I've accumulated. And there's no question that she would get that at Probstein. The same card can sell an hour later by, by some rando seller. And I promise you, the Probstein card will sell for more if it's the same card in the same grade. And it is what we call in the hobby, the Ricky tax, Rick Probstein runs Probstein. Uh, we call, I call it the Rick, Ricky tax. You're going to pay more to get a card from him because they just happen to sell more. Now, whether that's shilling, shill bidding, or you, you can say whatever you want, I won't care because I'm dead and I want Julie to get the most out of my collection. And so use Probstein to consign the cards that an auction house won't take because uh, there's just so much bulk, right? And so those are the two kind of routes. Make sure you have a friend. Those are, those are the tips. Have a friend, have a good consignment that you'd want to get those cards sold and use an auction house, use their expertise because they're going to take it and sell it. And you're going to give up a percentage to do that. You give up a percentage to proceed. Anyone will take a cut because they're in business and that's okay. But the big thing is write out a plan, write out a plan, what to do if I have a, it's literally a document that says if my, what to do if Mike dies, like literally that's the title of it. And so it's a whole list of things, not just sports card stuff, but life stuff too, of things she would need to take care of and deal with and who to call and who to deal with on this bill or that bill. Just make sure you have a plan and that it's written out and that your heirs know where it is and where to find it. Okay. Next question from Lee Haskins. I love all vintage card, but you are all vintage cards, but you are all baseball. Any videos going forward on vintage football, hockey, or basketball? 
Lee, that's a great question. It's actually a question I've gotten asked a lot or encouraged, hey, do some stuff on football or base or basketball or whatever. And the the simple answer to that is no, I'm not going to do that. And it's not because I don't think that vintage football and basketball and other sports are great. Uh, I just don't know anything about it. And if there's if I've learned anything out of doing content creation for, you know, the better part of nine years, I will tell you, I have learned to stay in your lane. I have learned to stick with what you know and don't try to talk out of your butt about a topic you don't know. And so I, uh, I also follow the good to great. I don't know if anybody's read that book, good to great. It's a kind of a, a business book, but it tells you if you're going to any, in any endeavor, find something you're really good at and, and just rinse and repeat and just do that. And I know vintage baseball very well. And so I have a lot of knowledge in that area, a lot of experience in that area. So I'm just, that's what I'm going to stick with. So my real encouragement would be for anyone out there that wants to start a vintage football basketball podcast, go for it. That would be what I would tell you is find somebody else that's really knowledgeable about that because it ain't this cat. Let me tell you, uh, it needs to be someone else that actually knows what the heck they're talking about. I would be a fish out of water there and that would make no sense for me to do that. So I'm sorry, Lee, but I am going to stick with baseball. Uh, so next question, Adam Holgate says, you've discussed collecting the Hall of Famers from 50s through the 80s. Is there a PSA registry <clears throat> or checklist you work off of? And the answer is yes to both. Yes, there is a PSA set registry. And it's, and it's not where there's a set registry that's all inclusive of 50s through the 80s. But there is a decade set for each of those decades in the PSA set registry. <clears throat> it's actually called, let me get to it here. Um, I'm looking at my PSA sets that I that I do right now on PSA. And it's called, uh, for the 50s, for example, 1950s Tops Decade of Hall of Famers. And there are 286 cards in that set registry. For the 60s, 1960s Tops Decade of Hall of Famers, there are 630. So it goes from 286 in the 50s to 630 in the 60s, which makes a lot of sense. They were doing a lot of subsets. And so it includes every card, includes cards of managers. And if a player appears on a World Series card or a league leaders or whatever, they're all there. And uh, it's it's a pretty great reference and starting point for to look at. But I'm also starting to expand to where I'm, I'm more open-minded to picking up uh, SGC graded cards just because of the price difference and you know they they grade really well in terms of their process and I think they're a PSA six for them is a SGC six at SGC so <clears throat> I think it's a uh, very consistent I think they're they're a great grading company and so I'm I'm becoming more open-minded and I'm becoming uh, I'm, I'm feeling less of a slave to the set registry, I guess, because I do have my own checklist. I keep that on a spreadsheet. I've shown that before on videos and how I organize my collection. But I have a I have a checklist with every card because the reality of it also is I have found that on some of these set registries that they don't have all the cards that I include on that I want to collect for that. And so 
they just missed them. And and I, if I catch it on PSA, you can submit for a card to be added to the to the list of cards for that decade, for example. But I just have my own checklist that I work off of, and it allows me to. Uh, what's great about the registry, though, is when you're at a show or something, I don't have to carry around a binder with all these, you know, spreadsheets. I can just pull it up and do I have this card or not, you know, and that's super helpful by the way. But at the same time, having your own spreadsheet, having your own checklist, not a bad thing either. To me, it's more of a redundancy thing. I like having multiple places where I have this information because God forbid something happened to one or the other, or whatever. Uh, I have a backup, so to speak, and I have another way to track what I have and what I need and all that good stuff. So um, the, the simple answer you said or to your question is, yes, there are individual registries for each decade. For the Bowman cards, though, for the early 50s, you know, 50, well, any Bowman card, basically, you know, 48 through 55, there is a year by year registry. And there are also individual year registries for all the other years. You know, there's a 1973 Tots Hall of Fame set registry. If you just wanted to do 73 tops, you didn't want to do the whole decade. Each year has its own registry. You can do that independent of the decade. The Bowmans themselves have their own individual years. There's not a Bowman, you know, Hall of Fame run registry, which would be cool, by the way. Maybe that's a suggestion I should give to uh, to PSA. But yeah, that's uh, the answer to that question, Adam. Thank you for that. All right. Next up, um is would you would i ever consider being involved in the hobby full time and i and i assume that means this is a question from a long time ago that i went back kind of in the in the archives and was looking for other topics and someone had asked me that a long time ago would i ever consider being involved in the hobby full time and i i assume that means as a job as a career as a way to to make a living and the answer for me personally is hell no, not just no, but hell no. And, and the reason I feel so strongly about it is because this is a hobby to me. This is something I do for fun and I enjoy it and I like it. I don't want it to be, you know, paycheck dependent, what happens in the hobby and the goings on in the hobby and how successful I could be theoretically in the hobby, trading cards and all that stuff. So I don't think I have the right mindset for it. I'm a, kind of that collector mindset. I just want everything. And if somebody brought in a lot of cool stuff, I'd end up keeping it and not wanting to sell it. So that, that would be a bad business decision also and bad business plan. So the reality is I'm just not cut out to be in the hobby full time. And it's not how I'm wired. It's not how I want to be wired. It's not how I want to think about the hobby as a way to make a living. And kudos to those of you that do. Honestly, the guys who own shops and are dealers at, at shows and, you know, trading and selling cards on eBay and Facebook and all those different places where people can make a living on at, on the hobby. Man, good for you. That is awesome. Uh, I also think it would hate make me hate cards pretty quickly. I would, uh, you know, the worst thing for me, and I love pizza is my favorite food, but I don't want to work at a pizza joint because I would ultimately hate pizza. And that would be a tragedy. Same with cards. I would feel uh, like it was a tragedy if I got to the point where it was like, you know, eating your asparagus or whatever uh, at dinner. I, 
or your vegetables, like, no, I don't want to do it. I don't like them. I don't want to feel that way about cards. So that is not on the docket for me anytime soon. Although I have a dream and I'll never probably, this is a total pipe dream will never probably come true, but running, first of all, dream job in the, in the entire world for me, if I could have one job in the world, it would be the, be the president of the baseball hall of fame. And since Cooperstown isn't calling me, asking me for an interview, uh, that's probably not going to happen either. But I would leave what I'm doing now. Wouldn't matter the salary, wouldn't care, would go right now. And I've told Julie that, and she knows I'm serious that I would do that. Uh, the other thing I've thought about doing, this pipe dream idea, is running a baseball card museum. Like having a true museum for... Really, it'd be more of a sports card museum. It wouldn't be just baseball, probably. It would be difficult to keep it only to baseball. But I guess I could. It'd be, if it was my museum that I created, I could keep it to baseball. But having a museum uh, would be really cool that people could visit and learn the history of sports cards and, and baseball cards and how integral it is with being a child and growing to love a sport and how kids learn off of that and statistics and all the different stuff that baseball cards has taught me over the years to be able to talk about the history of that and show examples of that would be super cool. But again, uh, all it takes is tons of money, which <laughs> that's, you know, and I got a regular life that I got to lead. So in a career and family and all those things. So that's just a pipe dream, but okay. Uh, Last question. These two kind of go together. Um, I don't know how to read. I'm going to read these, I guess, and then it'll make sense how I think they kind of work similarly. The first the first part is from Vintage Lev, who is Tom, and I've had the pleasure of meeting Tom at a Dallas card show. He and I have uh, done some deals for some cards in the past. But Tom asks, what is the deal that you didn't go to? that you didn't do, excuse me, that in hindsight, you wished you would have pulled the trigger on. So a deal like buying a card, buying a collection, whatever. And I'm going to read all the questions and then kind of answer all this as one. So again, what is the deal that you didn't do that in hindsight, you wished you would have pulled the trigger on? How did that change your approach to collecting? Also, what deal have I done that I wish I hadn't done? And then patient 026 asks, what is your favorite sports card memory? So these are all kind of going in because thinking about a deal that I have done that I wish I wouldn't have, or a deal that I wish I would have done that I didn't and sports card memories run together, but I'll, I'll address Tom's first because that's more card specific. And then I'll work on the memory part, favorite sports card memory from patient 026. Thank you both for your questions, by the way. Deal that I didn't do that in hindsight, I wish I would have pulled the trigger on. So a couple of things come to mind. One was very recently, the, the collection that I kind of, I'm going to use the word brokered the deal. I was just the middleman and I connected what I called the vintage, the, the barn find. I did a couple of videos on that, a couple of uh, golden age episodes about that. A collection of mainly late forties, early fifties, Bowman cards, few tops thrown in there, nothing huge, but it had a Mantle rookie, 51 Bowman, a Maze rookie, some great old Ted Williams cards. I bought actually two cards from that collection. 
uh, a 1950 Bowman Jackie Robinson and a 48 Bowman Stan Musial rookie card, <clears throat> both of which I got graded that came back authentic. It was a, a gentleman who's uh, I'm acquaintances with through another guy. It's kind of a friend of a friend thing. And I hooked that up with uh, Mike uh, up at Mikey Mantle's MM7 sports cards in Oklahoma, a shop I visited multiple times, know them well, and thought, you know, he's the best person to just buy this collection outright. And I really, really wish I would have bought that collection. Honestly, looking back on it now, what are we uh, probably 10 months, eight months after the deal? I wish I would have been able to do that. And I could have pulled it off financially. Uh, it would have definitely had to promise Julie, like, you know, back massages for a year and, taking her to the spa and whatever, but could have pulled it off. It wasn't so much money that it was just ridiculous. And it, it turned out to be a really good deal for MM. it was a great deal for the guy who was selling it, whose name happened to be Mike as well. Um, but I wish I would have bought that collection. I wish I would have ponied up the cash and I would have been able to sell cards that were with, that would have been dupes for me and probably made up the entire cost of the collection and been able to add a ton of cards to my PC basically for free or at very little cost. And so I, I guess I just wasn't willing to do the work. If, if I'm being <laughs> as honest as I can be, it just, I looked at it all. And I went, Oh, I don't want to have to mess with that. That was the truth. And that's why I, I handed it over to a guy who does cards for a living. So this goes back to that whole doing cards for a living thing. I mean, I want to do it because I like it and I would have had fun with it. Honestly, now that I, again, as I process through that decision more and more, I realized I would have had a great time doing that and figuring out which cards to grade. And, but then the idea of, well, I got to sell a bunch of this stuff and, Oh, am I going to be able to sell it? And do I even want to sell it? You know, am I going to be able to get enough money and this and that it would have, it would have weighed on me. And that was just something I wasn't in the moment willing to do. I wish I would have done it. I, I really do. Uh, don't know what the outcome would have been if I would have gotten kind of disgruntled slash sick of it, you know, like grumpy, whatever. Uh, I don't know, but it, it didn't change my approach, but it did make me think, hey, the next time that might happen, I need to be willing to to jump all in on it. and and see about doing that. So it didn't change my approach to collecting. It changed the way I might think about buying collections going forward. And I've never been a big, you know, buy a collection kind of guy. Uh, but that was an opportunity that I think I missed, honestly. Okay. Uh, another thing, just on an individual card basis, telling a story, I can remember, I can remember this so clearly because it's, it's kind of like, uh, I'm trying to think of a great analogy. I guess I'll use a poker analogy. If you ever played poker, you never remember the big hands that you won. You really only remember the bad beats. It, those are the ones that just stick in you and, and get under your crawl. And you just kind of can't get rid of that memory of the negative. You don't, I guess in sports, you know, you remember the, the horrible losses. You don't remember the great wins a lot. You know, that uh, the agony of defeat is great and it tends to overwhelm the thrill of victory. So 
there was a card and this isn't a huge like I'm, I'm probably propping this up more than it deserves but uh, in 2000 and god what year was it 14 maybe the national was in cleveland i think I, it was in cleveland for sure i just can't remember the year i was at the national and there was i remember going to baseball card exchange great booth great stuff and they had a 19 53 Bowman color Mickey Mantle PSA five for $150. And I remember walking by that card a dozen times throughout the time I was there at the show and kept going, yeah, maybe I should pull. And this was really, I was into the 300 great cards. I was doing some of the hall of famer stuff, some of the runs but I was doing individual, I hadn't gotten full bore into this whole four decade craziness. And so I was contemplating buying this card and I ultimately passed on it. And I totally regret doing that. I regret not getting it when I had the chance to for that. And I always thought, man, that's such a great card. It would be great just to have period. Even if, you know, it's not a big deal. It must've been 2014 because by 2016, 2017, I was, I was getting into the big time into what I'm doing now. So I, um, uh, I passed on that and man, I wish I would have bought that card because <laughs> that card now is obviously like everything, you know, gone up tremendously. And how has that changed my perspective? And the, the answer is, uh, I now, and this, and I think about that card a lot. It's, it's constantly in the back of my mind when I see a card at a show, or, or wherever online that I, that I've wanted for a long time at a price that's very reasonable. I just jump on it. I just buy it. And I don't think about it. I go, yep, that's I'm buying it uh, because I don't want to have another 53 Bowman color Mickey Mantle story to tell a number of years from now. And so that's just changed my approach for sure that I'm much more of a jump on it guy and, and buy it when you see it. Um, uh, so that's definitely changed how I think deals that I've done that I wish I hadn't done. Well, I don't have a lot of regrets of stuff that I've bought. And, oh, I wish, I mean, you can always say, I wish I would have waited that card or I wish I would have, the price went down or whatever. And I, I, I genuinely, once I buy a card, I don't track prices anymore. I'm not going, Ooh, what's this doing? Or what's that doing? Other than kind of my top cards in my, collection just because i do an annual top 50 cards in my collection so i track some of it and i but i don't go oh i wish i would have waited that would have been great i don't do that to myself that's just uh why kick yourself when you're down kind of thing and i don't regret buying any cards but there have been some autographs that i've bought that ended up being fake i've bought i bought fake joe dimaggio's fake satchel pages fake willie mazes Wow, there's way more autographs that I can tell you I've been duped on and I wish I hadn't done deals. Uh, but that also taught me a lot too. It it taught me to be a lot more vigilant. It taught me to not just trust who's selling it to me or trust uh, the letter of authenticity that's with it. You need to know the signature. Don't trust, don't only trust that there's a letter with it saying it's real, saying that it's genuine. Uh, they miss stuff too. And so it's caused me to be a lot more cognizant of what the signature really should be, regardless of 
if it's in the slab or not, or if it comes with a full letter from JSA or PSA or whoever, take that as part of the decision-making process. Okay. They're saying it's real. Let me double check. Uh, so, and do my own homework to make sure. So that's taught me to be, that's changed my approach to collecting autographs by getting duped multiple times over the years and shame on me. Right. Um, I, I, I blame no one but myself. Honestly, I don't go, ah, oh, that person's a jip me off or rip me off or whatever. Nope. That's on me. So, and then the, the last question of the night is what's your favorite sports card memory? And I saved this till the end intentionally because I have so many great memories from the hobby of being a kid and, and all of that. And that's not where I'm going to focus this memory on, but obviously like a lot of us, we remember being innocent children and buying sports cards and not caring about condition and not caring about, you know, anything other than I want my favorite player or my favorite team. And I'll trade away all of my Ken Griffey's and Mike Schmidt's and whoever for Texas Rangers, which was <laughs> completely asinine at the time and would be today. But I didn't care. I, I didn't think about value. I didn't think about any of that stuff. I just wanted cool cards in my collection. That was all I thought about, honestly. And so those are great memories. But to be real, the hobby became so much more for me when I started sharing my hobby. Uh, sorry, you can hear Norman barking. Who knows what he's hearing? Uh, but the hobby became so much more for me once I met so many different people, so many great people in this hobby um, and made so many friendships. I am sorry, guys. I have no idea why Norman decided right now to go nuts. And if it was as simple as me muting my mic, but then you couldn't hear me. So, and I don't want to step away and tell him to be quiet. But this is important because this is a, this whole thing, this whole idea of what has made the hobby so valuable to me now is so much more than the cards. The cards are great. I love them, no doubt but I love the people even more that I've met along the way, the friends that I've made. And I, and I have a specific memory of meeting Eric, those back pages for the first time at the 20, I want to say it was the 2018 national. He and I had never met. We had talked a lot uh, back and forth and talking on the phone and you name it, but getting to meet him in person and literally giving him a hug and feeling like I've known him forever. So awesome and Garrett and JT and Andy and Mike and the list goes on and on Nate and Joe and Ty and all these guys so many guys I could give you a laundry list of people that have made an impact in my life that's my greatest sports card memory and it's the thing that I will take with me long beyond when I get rid of all these cards someday if I ever do or whatever the friendships that I've made will, and those memories with those people and spending time with those people and acquiring cards with them. You know, I remember buying, I know when I bought certain cards with Josh or uh, Andy or Joe or, or Eric and whoever JT, all of it. Uh, the times I've spent with Garrett. And again, I don't want to, I feel bad if I leave anyone out that's made an impact. So many people, uh, I could, I could 
literally list hundreds. Thank you to all of you because you've made this hobby so much richer for me, uh, so much more depth to this hobby than just the cards. And that is the greatest memory in my sports card career, so to speak. So that is it. Thanks again to everyone for asking all of your great questions. Uh, again, if you just send more to me, if you have more questions or this has brought up other things you want to ask, please do. I'll be happy to uh, address those in a future video uh, and podcast. So everybody, thanks for listening to the golden age of cardboard. I hope you have a great rest of your week and uh, Hey, keep collecting. We'll talk to you soon.